and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, you are ill. So, we have delayed <laughs> the Nintendo DS draft by one week. I'm and sorry, listeners. And to you, Samuel. <laughs> no, it's okay. I think we needed an extra week to make this one good. Because I did want to have like a, a very rich and exciting Saturday morning dipping into some old games and also some <laughs> other games I've been hoovering up on eBay. So... I think we needed the extra time, ultimately, to kind of crash straight into that one after Gamescom. I'm not sure we would give the DS its full due, and I want to give it the same treatment we were able to give the PS3 and the 360. Felt pretty... Felt like we nailed those ones, you know what I mean? We just... We, we yeah, like properly you nailed gave the PS3 a one. <laughs> I said, I'd fuck well, all about what I was talking about. Uh, well, you attended. I've got to bring my A-game to the DS. I feel like there's a lot of eyes on me to see, like, <laughs> has Old Castle still got it? Can you still draft with the best of them? Yeah, I mean, you. I think you are currently winning the XXL draft, but that's a non-canon draft. I mean, this that is, is the... also, like, total horseshit. So. Yeah, we should never talk about that episode again, even though people seem to quite <laughs> enjoy it. So, yeah. People are like, hmm, I fancy watching just planes, trains, and automobiles for the rest of my life, so I'll vote for this service. Yeah, you have finished Basic Instinct. Now you'll watch Ricky Gervais meets Gary Shandling. That was. Uh, but if you don't subscribe to the Patreon tier, then you, you know you've not really missed out. People who are subscribed seem to enjoy it, but I don't know. It's for the listener to decide. We wash our hands of it and we can move on. Um, but yes, yeah, so the DS draft. I agree. We just we really nailed the preamble on the um, last two drafts. So I just want to make sure we get that bit right because I don't know as much about the history of the DS as I do about the um, the PS3 and the 360. So I want to make sure we just get we get there with the episode plan. So that's why that one's gone back a week. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean this episode will be a waste of time. Um, far from it. So uh, me and Matthew have been playing a few little bits and pieces, nothing major. Um, but I did also want to give people, Matthew, a taste of what's coming up on the uh, September 2023 pod schedule. So... This is September 1st, you've got a What We've Been Playing episode. On the 8th, we've got the Nintendo DS draft. 11th, we've got our Excel pod, the Patreon-exclusive episode of the month. Two giant men take on an escape room at the best gaming prisons. Me and Matthew are going to an escape room on the Monday after you're listening to this to um, to, to, to try and finish that escape room, then we'll record a podcast about it. Should be fun. Maybe we'll try and capture some audio while we're in there. We haven't thought that far ahead, but Maybe. I don't know. I worry that the person running the escape room will see us like... Because they watch you on CCTV cameras to make sure you're not stuck. And yeah. I worry that they'd be like, why are these two weirdos apparently podcasting in our escape room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who are these fucking psychos? Yeah, <laughs> I look forward to that awkward moment um, on a Monday night. So yeah, um, that's happening on the 11th. And then um, on the 15th, we've got Games Court, the return of Games Court. Got some listener entries for that one, Matthew. But at some point, I think in October or November, I will have a game score of my own for you to litigate of my purchases. I now have enough for another one. So that's how things have been going lately Um, (laughs) on the uh, coping emotionally front. One of those summers. (laughs) Very much so, yes. And then we get to um, September 22nd, where we have Two Giant Men Play Starfield. I'm going to give ourselves a bit of time for that one. So we won't actually get to play it until the 6th, I don't think. So I want to make sure we've got... It's available day one on Game Pass. Um, By day one, I mean day six. So um, that's... uh, But we still want to talk about Starfield. Major, obviously, the huge release of this year. Um, Looking forward to trying to cram that and Baldur's Gate 3 into my end-of-year schedule. Going to be a (laughs) fucking nightmare. Ain't going to happen. No, definitely not. September 28th, uh, another Patreon episode, XXL episode. More of Matthew's Asian crime fiction bullshit. Um, Matthew's uh, the first episode we ever did of uh, of the podcast um, behind the paywall was the uh, was an XXL episode on 
Japanese crime fiction, so we're going to return more broadly to crime fiction in that episode, Matthew. Do you have any more inkling of what that episode's going to be about yet, or is that I, TBA? Yeah, it, it's it's not just going to be Japanese stuff. Uh, there'll be some Chinese and some Korean stuff. Uh, I'm trying to think of something quite quick and easy to give you so we could maybe have another little book club section, because I quite enjoyed that in the first episode. Yeah. So I'll try and palm you off on that. Um, might throw a bit of manga into the mix, maybe. Ooh, um, exciting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you've got anything that's like the Japanese crime fiction equivalent of Mr. Men books, then that'd be <laughs> ideal. Um, for the. Rec- I actually <laughs> I actually do. I've, I've, got <laughs> a, I've got a tiny little book of short stories. The book's about the size of a Mr. Man book. Like, it's right. physically smaller. Uh, called uh, There Was a Knock at the Door or something. And it's like short stories, which all, which all start with there being a knock on the door. And they're kind of sort of like... I don't know, it's sort of mystery, thriller, kind of Twilight zone kind of things. Okay, interesting. Well, if you do have anything that's like, Mr. Grumpy was assassinated in Kyoto, that'd be spot on. But, he you was know, assassinated in, the... in, in a locked room, but there was a grandfather <laughs> clock and an avocado, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's the kind of fun uh, that you'll get behind the paywall this yeah. month then, um, should be good. And then the final episode of the month of the regular feed... September 29th, Things You Only Realise When You Make Games, with People Can Fly's Jamie Smith, who I've never met, but really likes the podcast, seems like a good dude, has been on other podcasts, and uh, yep, he's going to talk a bit about, uh, well, basically what it's like to be a game developer, and how, I think how, like, the public perceive the game versus how developers perceive games, mm. something like that. It's in a somewhat larval form, but I think it's going to correct us on all our bullshit, basically. <laughs> yeah, here's what you've eighty percent of your content has been wrong, and here's why. Um, no, it should be good. Um, so, looking forward to that. Should be a packed month, Matthew. Very exciting. Mm. This episode, then, what we've been playing, Matthew and me, have got we got three games each to discuss. Basically, do you want to start with one of mine, Matthew, or one of yours? Let's start with one of yours. Okay, so first up, I'm afraid there's nothing major like blockbustery in the in the mix this month. If that's the sort of thing you were kind of hoping we talk about, but I would say that all of the things we have to discuss are quite interesting. Actually, that's a lie. We've got Armored Core in here, haven't we? So <laughs> that is like literally a From Software game that Matthew's been playing. So we could talk about that. Um, but the first thing I'm going to discuss is a Doom Wad, uh, known as My House. Now, this has done the rounds with horror youtube and a lot of the major pc gaming websites covered it i first heard about it because um a long time listener of the pod uh robert augusta mayer um was talking about i think he was like talking about how no one was discussing my house as a game of the year contender when it really should be so i was kind of curious that sent me down the rabbit hole um robert's previously asked why haven't we played and talked about cruelty squad on the podcast <laughs> oh. i feel like i've let i feel like i've let him down on a lot of games so um <laughs> So I wanted to uh, look into this, and I'm really glad I did. So this is basically a horror game in the form of a Doom mod. And the Doom mod is presented as if it's a mod of someone's house. And then you dig into it and realize there are, there are layers to it. And I suppose like the key thing with this is you don't want to spoil the surprise, right? Because I think that's a lot of the magic of this, is you expect one thing and you get something else. So I, th- I, don't, I feel comfortable saying it's a horror game. And that the uh, the sort of like the my house element is very much a, a facade to lure you into a false sense of security because that's really only step one with this. Top level, it is a doom level in the sense that you fight doom enemies as you're going through this house type environment, but the house keeps changing. Now, hmm. I won't say exactly why. A lot of my early journey with this game was understanding the different points of interaction in the house and what you're supposed to be doing. Fundamentally, you're kind of collecting little props that are around 
that are that, that pop up across the course of this mod that is basically a standalone game you need doom 2 and you can save it as you go load it you'll need to be doing that a lot because you might find yourself going down one of multiple paths in the game which is pretty amazing as well um, to discover that that's a thing in this and it's something i would describe as somewhere between yeah across between the games of daniel mullins pt and a little bit of puppet combo i've talked about in the podcast right. before sort of like you know kind of like uh, ps1 ps2 horror aesthetic kind of um amazing uh sort of like indie uh indie games made for a, a sort of a select audience that have uh that has kind of expanded over time and this is sort of like an interactive horror game in the form of a doom level and i it keeps surprising you keeps amazing you as i say it's got multiple paths there are some things that won't occur if you don't activate certain objects at certain times and i'm picking it that's been one of my great pleasures of playing games this year matthew i've mm. played probably four hours of it and i don't think it's meant to be four hours long i think i'm just rubbish and bad <laughs> at figuring it out but once i went down a route that i realized was completely optional um i i had to read all about it i basically went and started it again and then found a, a bunch of other stuff but the amount of detail it put into it you'll go down you'll see doors to places that shouldn't exist you'll open a door that seems like it should go to nowhere but it spills off into a whole other area of the house you'll see like um what is normally just a closet with you know just like a a sort of like chest of drawers in there turn into a like a, a path to nowhere with a kind of like a wall that that doesn't go anywhere then when you open the door again it's 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 a normal closet again that kind of stuff just things that fuck with your mind um, right <laughs> and then some much bigger high concept stuff that i've shared with you on on discord yeah. but do not do not want to spoil for the listeners who are right 100 encouraged to go out and play this but i was curious what you think as someone who had some of the you know the spoilery bits sent to you what you kind of make of this you, what this, <laughs> how this affected your perception of what this is I, I i had some idea just from the people who were talking about it on twitter i'd seen a, f- a few people mention it and knowing their tastes and that they were excited about it i thought oh this is probably some like deep deep horror cut does it ever present itself as not that like is it ever like it's the first thing you experience quite straightforward or is it, is it quite odd from the off yes it is straightforward at first because you it is a doom level you fight yeah. doom enemies and they're in a house and then you shoot them and you and you collect ammo it has ammo and health like a doom right. level would and then i would say on the second at some point you leave the house and you come back into the house i would say that's when it starts getting strange and how it does that with music and the ways in which the house changes um, right that's as far as i'll go with explaining yeah Matthew. that sounds yeah. squeaky um yeah i know i love this kind of stuff you know i i love the fiction of uh that this thing is just out there in the world and and people have discovered it quite organically um i think it's right that no one really knows who made this is that right yeah, I think it is. It's a largely unknown creator called Steve Veg Nelson. Um, <laughs> Veg being in inverted commas, just to make that very clear. Oh, right, it's not um, one surname, Veg Nelson. But it, what what is cool about how uh, they presented it is that it's uh, an enhanced. They presented it as an enhanced version of a fifteen-year-old mod, and it's quite clear from playing it that that is a little bit of a fib. 
Um, right. But it's a nice it's a nice fib to set your expectations at a certain level. I would say um, it kind of feels like a, yeah, it's it's much more advanced than you initially think it's going to be. I would say um, yeah, and I, it, they did also present it as my house, my own house, but full of demons, which cannot be true but i understand this taps into like quite an old doom thing of people making their house or making houses in doom that was, as right. that was like a thing that people used to do in the 90s is my understanding from robert who has met who has tweeted me about this a few times right but, right yeah, yeah. I, I just i just need to play this for myself um it sounds like i mean definitely some of the stuff you told me about and one of the things you showed me was like sounded faintly preposterous um <laughs> like it this isn't like a terminally online game, is it? No, I, I understand why you thought that from what I sent you. Yeah. But that is as terminally online as it gets, I would say. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that, okay. that that moment is designed to evoke something very specific as well, which makes sense when you play it, I think. Um, <laughs> right. I have to play it. I mean, like, I'm not going to spoil what it was that you shared with me, but it was a kind of a, oh, right. I thought I had a read on this thing, but that that, <laughs> that is that is not what I was expecting to hear at all. Um, it sounded yeah. quite. It sounded like something Jay Bayless would like. <laughs> yeah, de- definitely. That it is had both. Big, it's got big kind of like cursed nineties energy, <laughs> which is yeah. something I associate with him for whatever yeah. reason. That, uh, he'll take that as the praise and criticism it's meant as. So that, you know. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, and I would struggle to talk about it anymore. What I will say actually about it is that. It does what I think a lot of we we used to get from a lot of kind of walking simulator type games in terms of like a feeling, a vibe, a narrative experience. But because it's wrapped up in a Doom level and you're doing like lots of Doom shooting still, I think that ends up being quite a good contemporary vessel for that kind of like what the hell is going on here type storytelling. Right. I'm really impressed by it as a kind of a halfway house between yet yeah, genuinely like brilliantly constructed inter- an interactive narrative vibes. So I'm not I'm not saying like there's loads and loads of meat on the bones to the story, but there's a lot of what is going on here that is delivered through how the environment is presented to you that is incredibly impressive. So yeah, this what is I'm, what I'm hearing is basically you wish that um gone home had a, a an attic area full of demons to shoot. <laughs> if um if Gone Home was like a quake map, that would be quite uh, quite fun, I think. But um <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's just that like I just think it's such a great. I don't know. We we kind of live in this weird nostalgia era of old and new things colliding all the time, and this almost feels like the best contemporary form to put something a narrative experience like that in where you can appreciate the effort that's gone to bringing the world to life and the the feeling it creates and the music the music in this is well i just think it has to be heard to be believed frankly okay. it's, uh it's quite I mean, it's quite yeah. the thing you've you've sold me on it i'm just like you know here's a cursed here's a cursed doom mod is like such a great pitch because yeah so many of these kind of like creepy pasta things you know they're just stories you know it's just oh i played this fucked up pokemon cartridge or whatever but to go to the effort of just putting it out and letting people discover it i i wonder if if the person who made this old veg nelson <laughs> had to <laughs> um like nudge people 
you know to like you've made it and you're like are people gonna just discover this organically or do i have to just prod people in the right direction it's a bit like when you've made like a weird twitter account like Mm. the back page quotes account and you're (laughs) desperate to you're desperate to get a bit of traction it's like how do you how do you give something the bump into the realms where it's going to be found you know yeah I, i think what's happened here is that it was it was dropped onto one of the sort of like places where the doom world forums basically where right. this stuff gets shared and it was it was like a it was meant to be unassuming i think in terms of how it was presented and then i think that it's now got 61 pages that thread <laughs> um it's like it's like a whole story kind of like um thrown together it's like uh, it's, it, veg says excited to finally release this tribute map Last August, I lost a good childhood friend of mine and took it pretty hard. When I was visiting my hometown for his funeral, I connected with his parents who shared with me some of his old belongings. Among them was a copy of an old map of his backed up um, (laughs) on a 3.5-inch floppy disk from high school. Thomas and I were into amateur doom mapping in the early noughties, but I'd never seen this map of his prior to uncovering it on one of the old floppy disks. So you have a little bit of like, I don't know how much of that. You know, might be informed by yeah, real experiences. That's, so great. that's like Ringu shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, and then it's, uh, yeah, it, it <laughs> also presents it as not much of a challenge and roughly 10 minutes of playtime, which is just not true. But my understanding is that from there, it, it sort of like its popularity grew and then it started punching outside of like the usual places that people would talk about Doom Wads because obviously this is like a, you know, like a long running community you know this is a, a, a it's like a, you know it's a it's a constant doom doom wads are a constant of pc gaming right and for this to punch out and and reach the the corners that it has i think it really is one of those true viral successes and therefore it's worth celebrating for that reason so mm. yeah exciting i bet people who have because i own doom 2 on switch right i actually had to go buy a steam version to play this because hadn't played doom in years um i haven't played doom 2 in years so i actually spent like four quid to get it so i could play oh, this right so you know a bit of money in bethesda's pocket for that but yeah um well worth it uh this yeah this is absolutely going on the game of the year list as it stands so wow yeah yeah it's it's really good it's really it's not yeah i've pro- I, I worry now i've now overhyped it but the way it's been no, presented no, I, to me has not been overhyped so yeah yeah i've like i've, I've only heard amazing things but likewise like tempered by not wanting to tell you what it is yeah it's and got also, big like just play it like the ins- like the end of inside you know it's got like <laughs> a you just need to see this yeah it's very much like how people were talking about inscription where they were like it's this card game but something else is going on yeah, it's yeah. very a very similar vibe that's and that's high praise for something you can play for free with a very old game so mm. yeah don't want to set the but don't want to set people's expectations too high i would recommend making many saves because you'll find that you'll activate things you can't reactivate and break things and need to go back i've needed to reload and start again well not start again necessarily but go back at least like six or seven times so right go into it accepting that it's not like uh, it's not a completely linear experience you will make mistakes and you'll need to go back so that's what i will say but yeah um my house thank you so much uh mr veg um you did uh you did me a solid there so <laughs> um so we come to your first game matthew what do you got Shall I, I'm trying to work out which order to take these in. You can go with your first one here. Yeah, uh, Sea of Stars, uh, which is a sort of retro-inspired RPG from Sabotage, who are the people who made The Messenger. And The Messenger, if you didn't play it, was like a sort of a, a you know a modern retro riff on Ninja Gaiden. 
the 8-bit version. Uh, this is kind of a similar approach, kind of a you know modern tech, modern sensibility, modern design lessons uh, applied to the kind of RPGs of the SNES era. Specifically, Chrono Trigger is like a big influence on this. Um, there's quite a lot of uh, like Mario and Luigi and Paper Mario RPG in its combat system. It has that uh, kind of timed combat system where you you press button cues to to kind of energize attacks and boost your defense. Um, but it's uh, I I, I kind of I I love this sort of approach to games. You know, it's the same thing we saw in Shovel Knight where someone makes a love letter to a particular thing but sands off a lot of the rough edges, makes it very smooth, very, like, fast-moving. It's obviously visually very glossy. You know, this one, to look at the screenshots, kind of has that sort of 16-bit sprite look. But then when you play it, you begin to realise there's, you know, a lot of more tech going under the hood with, like, lighting and, like, real-time shadows, and um, the story kind of revolves around uh, sort of mystic, sort of monk-like warriors who pull their power from the sun and the moon. So there's a, a kind of mechanic which, in the first 10 hours, actually hasn't been used that much, but there's a mechanic where you can stand on these pads and sort of fast-forward time or rewind time uh, to change the light in the sky and change the shadows of things and where the shadows land can activate new machines. But suddenly seeing this static 16-bit screen, which normally in the old games, you know, the lighting would just be baked into it, and suddenly to see all that light shift and all the shadows move and the music as well will change from a kind of day composition to a night composition you know this is just stuff that would have been like way beyond the snes but here this this you know indie team is is obviously capable of doing it so um you know there is just great pleasure in in being in a genre that you enjoy and it kind of taking you back i mean the cliche is you know, it's this genre as you remember it, but it's obviously, you know, those games tend to be jankier and this is a lot more polished, which is which is why, you know, it's it's very much the kind of rose-tinted version. Well, yeah, I know, you know, apart from just, like, the production values and, like, the, the beautiful sprite work and the lovely music, some of which is supplied by Mitsuda, one of the composers behind Chrono Trigger and Xenoblade, um, I think he only contributed like 10 tracks to the game and there's a little bit of when you're playing it I'm I'm constantly aware of do, do I think this tune is good enough to be one of the Mitsuda 10 or is this the other bloke who I'm sure is a, also amazing composer um, but maybe that's some of my Xenoblade snobbiness there. And uh, what what I really like about it is is the combat system, which, like I say, has has these kind of like real time button presses of Mario, but also has just a little bit more going under the hood. Enemies uh, have when enemies are kind of preparing special attacks, they get these kind of locks above their heads, which are a series of icons. Which if you then attack them with those powers, uh, if you attack them with all the icons, you know that comprise that lock. Uh, you can sort of stun them and knock them out of that attack. So there's this sort of drive to 
you know, target particular enemies before they unleash really special attacks? And can you combine your own attacks and can you find the right combination of moves between your party to make sure you tick off all the relevant icons? It might be they need two sword attacks, two blunt attacks and a moon attack. And some of your moves will kind of combine like a blunt attack and a moon attack. So what's the kind of minimal number of moves you can do the most sort of efficient lock damage with? That's quite an interesting hook. There's also this kind of magic system where... As you attack enemies, they kind of drop sparks on the floor, which your party can then absorb to sort of like supercharge the next move that they do, which lets you start adding solar or lunar damage to moves that didn't previously have them. And I, I just think it, as a combat system, it feels like uh, you're very like, you've, you have to kind of exist in the moment and it kind of feeds itself. A lot of it's about like, managing energy which is generated from the combat itself so it's got this quite nice sort of feedback loop where you're hitting enemies they're dropping these things you're using these things to break another attack and it doesn't just feel like you leave the battle and you consume a load of like potions to get your magic points back it feels like there's certain things can only be achieved and can only be generated in battle I mean, the actual special attacks you have to kind of land normal attacks to sort of charge up a combo meter as well so there's it's just uh it's sort of impressively in the moment for one of these systems and also like the pacing of the adventure means that there's quite a nice variety of enemies and you're constantly introduced to new enemy types which is like one of the big flaws of that paper mario or the mario and luigi combat system is that once you've kind of learnt an enemy's attack patterns every fight with them becomes a little boring as a result because you're like ah it's this move again i know the perfect timings for this so the only solution to that is to kind of keep giving you lots of enemy variety because then you're having to constantly learn new attack rhythms and new little gimmicks to kind of get through the battles and this actually does a very good job of that so like I don't really have many complaints about it to be honest I've been having a really really nice time with this I mean it's a little like cutesy in terms of the story like it's it's, it's not gonna like win any writing awards I don't think um you know it's pretty kind of generic kind of chosen ones going out to save the world but you know it moves you through environments fast the environments are varied there's lots of nice music there's lots of nice little touches there's actually a really good mini game which is like one of the key criteria i would say for one of these kind of rpgs which is like a a kind of battling i don't even know how you'd really describe it you're kind of it's kind of like a fruit machine and as you pull it you get these symbols and the symbols become resources to either like power up these mechanical figures or build a defense around them so it's this sort of strange risk reward system built around a fruit machine that's a very bad way of explaining it if you played it you'd be like oh yeah that's cool but it has that kind of like you know it's not gwent level but it's a decent side distraction i think if if the stuff around the edges is good that that usually kind of gives you confidence in the main quest um i see you've been playing this one a little bit as well how, how are you getting on with it yeah it's funny um we it's funny we got asked a few weeks ago about indie rpgs right and which are out you know which ones are out there which ones are worth checking out and we didn't have loads beyond you know um undertale and amori and you know a couple of others and playing this made me realize just how for the taking a high-end version of this japanese rpg type um was there you know how that, yeah. that was still relatively untapped and made me think about how 
obviously Jay's game Cassette Beast taps into that like you know indie Pokemon thing, right? It's it's kind of there for the taking if you can make one that's good enough and looks mm. good enough and sounds good enough. And this looks and sounds incredible. It's mm. you know just like you say, it makes the most of modern tech, and so you know it's it's quite clever in how it will reuse bits reuse bits of um, foliage, you know, like um, sort of like swaying trees and things like that to mm. populate the environment, and make it feel alive, but. I would say it feels very it feels very expensive to me in terms of how detailed the animations are, how beautifully that world is brought to life. Chrono Trigger is obviously their main point of reference here because you have this um you have this uh, element of collaboration in the combat, you know, in terms of like um the way that you can make different party members um combine abilities to well that you know you unlock new abilities that require multiple party members to yeah. sort of like bring them to, um you know to pull them off but also at the same time like you say there is that um Mario and Luigi action command element to the combat which is you know pretty common you know these days we've seen that in like South Park and things like that but like yeah. I say the the kind of like blocking special moves um, element of it and having to react to the battle that way means it's not exactly the same so it's kind of like a best a best of of all the modern touches on a Japanese mm. RPG with a few new ideas of its own, you know? So I'm really impressed by it. I'm only like a, a couple of hours in, essentially. I'm nowhere near as deep into it as you. I think the obvious weakness is the writing. The writing is not as strong as all the other elements of the game. Yeah, if, the, it's if, just... the, if the writing was better, it would be a nine, I think, on the, like, no problem. I really do think that. It's... Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. It ha- It has, like, the looks and the shape of the quest and, like, you know the mechanics of the battle and also like you know there are some nice little puzzle elements in the dungeons and things it's a mm. little bit kind of golden sunny in the way that you can kind of you you have like almost light zelda dungeons at times and kind of how you use some, some real-time powers battles aren't like random like you see the enemies on the screen so it's all quite well behaved but i think you're right like this the, the story to me feels like a little bit too cute a little bit too throwaway yeah you know, like those those RPGs for their time, you know, they may seem like quite sweet by maybe some modern storytelling standards, but they had like a bit of edge to them. You know, they had stakes, they had characters you were worried about. Here, you know, the enemies are quite sort of Saturday morning cartoon. It's it's quite silly. You know, it's it, I guess more like Mario and Luigi. Where actually, like, if this had a story which really landed, it, it has all the other ingredients for mm. that to like gel into something like really spectacular and uh, as it is it, you know it's merely very good I <laughs> <think>. <laughs> yeah yeah I, I have no i have no complaints about the art or the sound yeah. or the or the mechanics all really well done like the writing thing actually you know what it did make me go away and think about well what is it actually about the snare zero rpg was that writing like fundamentally good on paper because i always think about that right. very smug tweet about how um a chrono trigger has 12 endings remind me how many endings does ulysses have which is one of my all-time most hated tweets because <laughs> it's so snobby about obviously japanese was RPGs that also and... uh, jason isaacs <laughs> <laughs> the mcflories are melting no it wasn't that you know the thing is i think they're actually quite economical with how they used words they're not actually so packed with story that you're sat there reading reams and reams of text whereas sometimes you can be in this game because it's more contemporary sort of flowery characterization and you know there's people talk more there's more to say and that sort of thing it's not to say there's too much of it but i think it makes you think about the quality of its writing more than those old games do and also you are right there was an edge to those games in chrono trigger one of the first things that happens is you go to the far future and find out you've lost 
You know, you find yeah. out that the world has been completely destroyed by um by Lavos. So you then have to go back and figure out how do I stop this timeline from happening. So it sets really high stakes early on. Now I'm not really far enough into this game yeah. to understand if it has a little bit of that, Matthew. But you are, and it sounds like there's there's not yeah, necessarily. Like, I think what it does, which is which is good, is is it's it's constantly establishing like new stakes for like little hour long adventures which i think is actually you know quite common to, to this genre it's it's like mm. a you know allegedly a 30 hour quest that's made up of lots of little stories each location you go to has its story which you know is a reason to go into a dungeon and fight a boss um some of the stories like hint at darkness like there's there's this one about a there's like a town with a haunted mansion which just so I don't know if it's every night, but every once in a while, it just sort of summons a sort of sacrifice to the mansion, and uh, you know, a person just becomes entranced from the village and and walks there of their own. And you know, played the right way, that could be a lot more sinister. This idea where everyone's just resigned to like by random, you could get pulled into this like fucking nightmare situation. But even there, it's like hee you know, there's these there's these dumb comedy pirates that. In what I've played of it, it really leans on them a lot. And every time they turn up, I'm like, ah, you know, there's just going to be like a minute too much of these guys talking every time. Right, yeah. Which is just enough for you to be like, ah, come on, you know, get on with it. But like they've animated them. They've obviously taken great pride in their character design. And Mm. maybe that's something that like, you know, will really resonate with people. It's just, uh, I don't know. Like, in wanting to stretch their kind of comic visual design muscles, they've had to kind of match that with this sort of story, which can can never go too hard. But, like I say, maybe in the, the, the remaining 20 hours I have left to play, it will, yeah. it will go that way. And, and the fact that it's reviewed so well, you know, people say it, it really sort of sticks the landing. And I, I have got to a point in the game now where, like, the world map opens up a lot more and that's quite fun like it's it's you know for a game of you know moderate scale i think this was like a team of 40 people kick-started you know and they've definitely scaled up from the messenger but like you know it's it's doing a very good impression of what once would have been like you know one of the bigger budgeted games of its time um so I'm, I'm i am really impressed the story thing doesn't bother me that much like it's it's just a oh man this this could have been like this could really compete with some of those greats if it just had a, a little bit more bite to it yeah it's i think it's deceptive in how you know maybe like low budget it seems but yeah they do have quite a big team working on this and they do have like these full animations that play in it right i think they have like maybe a sister studio that does animation something like that um matthew but right. either way either way it just imbues it with this next level of production values that you know definitely makes it stand out from the pack and you know as we're recording this i just said it sold a hundred thousand copies in a day basically so yeah and incre- it's and that's on top of it being in game pass and on ps plus as well yeah, and them having, you know, obviously backers who they're, they're yeah. have things to fulfill. So, you know, it's absolutely going to be in a load of Game of the Year 
this and i'm definitely going to keep playing it and that actually is high praise because not all of these kinds of um riffs on all the japanese rpgs have worked for me over the over the last few years and i think for this one to get the mechanics and the look and sound so right is a massive achievement even if i'm not like totally tuned into the story so i really do appreciate what i've played of it so far and i will keep going because as mentioned starfield is not coming out when i thought it was so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so i have a little bit of time to fill um, starfield so- died so see if stars could live yeah um, yeah one thing that's quite funny about this is because uh, it's a Kickstarter game, it has an area that's full of Kickstarter stuff, like all the in-game things that people obviously bought when they when they signed up for it. Right. And I kind of forgot it was Kickstarter when I was playing it, and I got to this island, and this, there's this big sort of song and dance about, oh, it's this mysterious temple. And I was like, oh, okay. And I went into this temple not realising it was where all the Kickstarter rewards had been placed. And all of a sudden, you just find all this really incongruous bullshit. Like, you go up to a (laughs) plaque and read it, and it'll be like, you know... This one's for you, Jonesy, or whatever. And you're like, eh? <laughs> <laughs> you're like well, that's weird. Like, what's that got to do with the story? And then you go into another room, and there's just like a giant statue of like quite a like quite photorealistic looking dog. <laughs> right. And next to it is a statue of like like a family. Like, they, obviously, people could send in photographs to be turned into statues in this temple. Right. And it's just full of like all these real world people in like real world clothes. That's um, what happened. That's what happened if we um, raised our. Uh, we had another tier on the Patreon, Matthew. Is we'd have to like start. We'd have, we'd have our "Here's to you, Jonesy" section of the podcast every month. So uh, yeah. yeah, this is like this is like you gave us a grand on Kickstarter. So here's your dog forever enshrined in this um, amazing RPG. You know. Yeah, but I, I, I always find that that odd in these games. It was the same in um, Shenmue Three, where. <laughs> you get to the second city and then there's this like big impressive looking temple dojo thing and you go in and it's just full of all this like weird fan art that people have drawn and there's like a um you know a gashapon sort of capsule toy machine and you open it up and like a toy of like just some bloke comes out of it and you're like, <laughs> what and you're like, oh, exactly oh, someone, sonic the hedgehog is it no that's it you know you're kind of oh is this is this a guy from Virtua Fighter? And you're like, no, that's just, that's just Dave. You know, a guy who played 200 quid to be turned into a toy in Shenmue 3. Um, like, you know, nice that they've saw it through and it's it's great that they, they honour their backers and everything. But yeah. it's, it's very, very hard to work those things into the game in a way which doesn't seem baffling to anyone outside of the Kickstarter process. Because, like, this is you discovering this temple. Like, it's a beat in the story. That's yeah. why I found it odd, because there was like a mysterious voice calling to you, and it turns out it was calling me because it wanted to just read basically a load of like random yearbook scrolls all right, over right. the game. Yeah, that is bizarre. It feels like that could almost be cordoned off slightly more, but yeah, like you say, because now 99% of the player base for whom this ten- temple was not intended for them <laughs> will have to go through this very strange sequence of the game before they continue on with the story. So yeah, like you say, nicely out of the backers, but also quite confusing. So yeah, I look forward to getting to that bit. But uh, yeah, very good, Matthew. Look, it's a, it's a, a good year for the um, six to seven indies that people have decided are the indies we'll talk about this yes. year. So yes, um, <laughs> good for them. And uh, yeah, look forward to talking about this probably a bit more, Matthew. Maybe you'll, I assume you'll continue on with this one. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, okay, good. All right then, so we get to my second and final game. Well, technically my third, because I played Sea of Stars as well. But I've been playing Dredge, Matthew, one of the other indies, as mentioned, that people have been playing this year. So wanted to get to this fishing horror game because I'd heard so many good things about it. Had a code from our good pal Ashley Day, um, who I saw at Gamescom. And uh, that was quite fun, actually, a little pleasant conversation before he disappeared and I never saw him again. Um, and so, yeah, he, uh, I've been playing this on Steam Deck where, where it's kind of perfect. And a lot of people just talked about this already, but it is a game where you start in a little fishing boat. You go around making money from um, from fishing and slowly upgrading your boat, but there are also horror elements at play as well. So at night time, weird Lovecraftian shit happens. You start encountering monsters, that sort of thing. Um, really... I would say, like, the thing about this is it's a weird comparison to make, right? But last year I loved Arcade Paradise because they said, what if we did this really cool idea, which was a game where you manage an arcade, and they made the best possible version of what that game could be on the budget they had. This developer has done the same thing with, what if we made a fishing horror game, and they made the best possible version of that? That's what's really impressive about this. The fishing mechanics are simple, but but good you just you know tap buttons you know at the right time in order to fish and the patterns change depending on the different fish that you find and as the name suggests you are dredging up um, wreckages of different boats and there are different types of fish to find you can drop little crab pots that sort of thing but the the layers of spookiness work incredibly well the game's really good at making your boat feel tiny in an ocean that's got you know so much kind of like weird shit in it and um the the map um changes um as you kind of like um you feel braver and you explore more and you get better engines and you know like a, a larger hull and sorry larger um, sort of cargo hold and that sort of thing and better better rods that sort of stuff it's got all the elements right including you know decent little bits of story on top of that really beautiful looking game and has more going on than even i kind of really thought it did at first it really kind of like unravels as you go so yeah fantastic little game matthew and i can see why it's become one of the big indie hits this year um most again a very strong candidate for the game of the year list have you played this one yet i've played a tiny little bit um lots of people on my team are really obsessed with this and right yeah it really seems to have broken out and i don't mean that in like i'm like i'm surprised you know it's you know it's it's got this very like compelling sort of central routine to it of like the fishing and the upgrading you know even just taken as a job sim it kind of works um but then it obviously has all that like weird shit out around the outside but um it, you know it, it, even with those things in mind like i'm kind of surprised this has been it broken out as much as as much as it has i guess this is like a, a lot of weird horror heads out there yeah, it's also got a visual style that's perfect for the Switch. I imagine this has been enormous on Switch. It feels like the right place for it. And, you know, mm. again, I'm never quite sure where we're at with Switch performance these days, so I play it on Steam Deck instead. Um, but, yeah, so it's... Um, and it's also got, like, a passive mode if you don't actually want to do the horror stuff and you just want to um, enjoy the world. But I would say that you'd be missing out if you did that. Um, it's mm. it's well worth having the fright Frighteners on. So, yeah, and they've kept updating it as well with new stuff. And it's... Yeah, it kind of like captures the wonder of the ocean as well. Like you, you will kind of like see like a blue whale swimming beneath you and things like that and dolphins in the distance as as well as the kind of like much darker and stranger stuff you find later on. So yeah, yeah real good. Um, oh, I can see what's broken out. If, it, if it's like a kind of gateway drug to sunless seas. <laughs> or if, yeah. You know, in terms of like 
you know, weird stuff. You know, you're going to bump into some, like, slightly weird kind of cosmic horror stuff out in the ocean. Yeah, um, really, really good, Matthew. It's uh, yeah, it's it's very pick-up-and-play. And, um, yeah, again, just with a simple visual style, does so much to make nights feel more threatening than day. Uh, yeah, mm. well done to Black Salt Games. I look forward to seeing what they do next. So, good stuff. Um, I'll tell you a, a small story about uh, an amusing fishing sign. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, my parents, uh, they live in this, this town called Beer in Devon. And uh, they, there's a, there used to be this, this isn't really, I've, 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 I've already bigged up this story way too much. <laughs> this anecdote is basically over. <laughs> is that <laughs> it? Was that the story? <laughs> no. When you walk down to the beach, there's a sign advertising a small boat business, but right. it's, it's missing a comma on it. <laughs> and it offers uh, mackerel fishing excursions. And also just pleasure trips. And th- there was this, this sign that used to say, for mackerel pleasure, contact so-and-so. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. That's, um, uh, that so does sound like something you'd see in a toilet, in a public yeah. toilet, doesn't it? So yeah, yeah that's, my, that's, my little, uh, that's my little fishing boat sign story. <laughs> No, it's pretty. It's pretty good. Actually, did make me think about because um, obviously Devon's got like a big fishing kind of like culture down there, right? It's basically why Brexit happened. <laughs> um, but you know, but also it's just like it's ge- it's a generational job, right? It gets kind of like passed down, and it's right. very grueling, and you just have these very harsh nights as you're trying to like you know basically sort of yeah keep your business going so it's not yeah it's not for the faint of heart by any means so um, yeah, yeah I, I find i find i found this like this game interesting from that basis too of like i've thought about what is it like to fish at night <laughs> it's probably right. fucking terrifying do you know what i mean so yeah, yeah. I, i've got quite a lot of affection for that that fishing culture like my, my yeah. stepdad like befriended a lot of like the local fishermen there yeah um you know he likes to sit on the sit on the because you know they, a lot of them go out in the morning do their do their fishing then and then they come in and then basically spend the rest of the day sitting in front of like beach huts drinking these enormous mugs of tea um <laughs> like it's beyond a mug it's like a giga <laughs> mug like i have no idea what these a carafe a carafe of tea a carafe of tea and he sort of sit, even though he's not a fisherman himself he's sort of been he was sort of allowed into their little like community. I think maybe because they like rinsed him for free tea, right. um, and took advantage of of a sucker. Uh, so sit there, have these teas with these fishermen, and then every once in a while, my parents would have um, like you know, barbecues or like evening do's or parties or whatever up at up at their house, and invite a lot of the local people and. You know, you'd get a lot of these 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 crustier sort of old fisher fisherman guys there, and when you get enough of them together at night and they've had a few drinks, like inevitably, and it, it sounds like like bullshit, but like they do start singing like sea shanties, right? Um, and like I've spent many evenings like sitting in the living room, like listening to these guys sitting in another room singing all these shanties about their towns and you know things lost to the sea or whatever. And this story isn't really going anywhere. But um, <laughs> is that the end of the story? Basically, no, no. no. Uh, one of the things I noticed they had a lot of songs where about like the town that they live in, right. and 
it's structured so that the, the town name is like very replaceable. So these, I imagine these shanties are sung up and down the Jurassic Coast, and yeah. that people just insert the name of their town. Like the, the name of the town, like is not sort of uh, the the rhyme doesn't hinge on it, you know. <laughs> so it's just there, and you and I. So that's what I always think. It's like there's these shanty templates that get passed along the coast to kind of like insert a bit of local colour to make it your own and I wonder who wrote the original shanty that was that was sort of structured so that it could be adapted that was a very fucking long winded route to nothing <laughs> Jesus Christ we got there in the end though didn't we so that's Listen, good <laughs> uh, poorly but uh, I've told you some stuff about a shanty alright oh I have one more question actually about your stepdad in that situation. Yeah. Do you think he very much was like Alan Partridge when he had those builders round, where it's like, I see we're all going to keep in touch after the tea, that kind of situation. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know how it started, but it's, it's genuinely, um, you know, because I, th- I think that some of the locals down there can be quite sort of, um, you know, sort of st- suspicious or standoffish with like outsiders to the town. Right. Um, so for him. You know, very much not a fisherman to be sort of like allowed into their little club. You know, and they've all got. You know, th- th- these are people who are, are only known as like nicknames. Yeah. You know, like I have no idea what any of them are actually called. <laughs> yeah. Um, I imagine like their nicknames would be on their gravestones, kind of yeah, people. S- yeah. Sa- Sam and Bob, etc. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Sam uh, and Bob. Isn't that the guy you work for in like Splatoon? <laughs> 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 Isn't that, that raccoon who wants you to kill all the fish? <laughs> Oh dear. Okay, I reckon that's enough time down this tangent. It's yeah. been fun though. It's been fun, fun little gentle ride. We should uh, do a sort of like some kind of face off of who's um who which podcast host's parents lives in the more middle class town in Devon. Like, that's that's something we could do in an Excel pod at some point, Matthew. Mm. <laughs> okay, so we've got two more games to get through from you. I don't have any more, but All you right. have two more. So what do you got? The one I'm really excited to talk about uh, is Paranormosite. Right. Which I was toying with actually holding off and just dropping on you in the Game of the Year discussion. Oh, yeah. I thought about that for a few I liked, games too. I like to have a few surprises in the mix, but also like I just like it too much and I feel like I should sing its praises in this What We've Been Playing episode. Yeah, that was me with my house as well. I really wanted right. to surprise you with that one, but oh well, never mind. Yes. I mean, maybe there's some other surprises I'm sitting on. Um, yeah. Probably not. Um, <laughs> this was on my radar after it was it was championed a lot by Chris Schilling when it came out many months ago, and it was like I've got to play that. I know it's going to be good. This is a very weird subgenre of Square Enix game where basically every year Square Enix make one game just for me, which is really nice of them. And last year it was a Centennial a Case. <laughs> I remember it well. Files. <laughs> <laughs> this year it's Paranormal Sites, The Seven Mysteries of Honjo. What I like about these games is that they both have the same like title structure, which is like bollocks, colon, bollocks. It's just nonsense. Which means no one ever buys them or plays them, even though they're really good. It's a horror visual novel about a group of seemingly unconnected citizens in this particular ward of Tokyo who on a particular night, are gifted a curse, a means of killing another person and uh, collecting soul energy from them. And if they collect enough of this soul energy, they can resurrect one dead person in their life. 
and it is kind of like the Zero Escape games in that you're following this big sort of story flowchart through this night and the day after and some other time to try and get all these people through their respective journeys kind of intact because obviously lots of people are getting bumped off in this story or can get bumped off based on these curses so the structure of the game is you know is is fundamentally like listening to a lot of story and then making key decisions to try and avoid a bad fate and then rewinding and making a different decision to to get a different branch of the story um that's all cool that's that's fine maybe actually the thing it's more like is shibuya scramble because you're jumping between multiple characters and decisions you make in one path may deliberately be made to help someone in another path or you might deliberately steer two characters so they're in the same location so they meet at the same time and things like that what i really love about this and why it's quite difficult to talk about is the actual setup of the curses and the rules of the curses it's kind of the big mystery you're trying to unpick a curse is only known to the person who has it in terms of they get told the conditions they have to fill to kill someone else so you end up with all these people who keep meeting each other and they're trying to figure out a does this other person have a curse and also if i do think they have a curse what's the weird condition that i'm trying to like avoid fulfilling it's like this very prolonged narrative game of cat and mouse people trying to work out what shouldn't i do in any given situation to trigger these curses and that i think is just such a cool hook like i'm i'm super into it you know about halfway through the story got about half the curses figured out you know some of the stories are kind of coming together but this this idea of having these like murder weapons that trigger in 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 very unusual circumstances and trying to sort of second guess those and figure those out that would be a great hook in a mystery novel and so it's just like playing through this really juicy mystery which is actually quite scary with very minimal interactions you know you're basically clicking on menus to make dialogue choices and in certain areas you can look around from that it it pulls out like a surprising number of tricks this is this is like quite a kind of almost kojima-y feeling game in some of the tricks it pulls like it, it really has fun with the rules of the game and the technology of the game and you know how visual novels function i'm like genuinely like quite blown away with it wow i mean you know i uh i'm pleased that you are eating so well with this genre matthew that is you have certainly not been you know left behind when it comes to interesting visual novels of late right yeah Um, but also this sounds like it has a lot more going on sort of layered on top of that um in terms of like the way those curses manifest so yeah, super, super interesting. I've hit this, put this on my wish list. Um, it does, it's got like, what, 1,500 Steam reviews? So some people have found it. Some people are enjoying it. Maybe it's like the typical crowd who finds all these games, Matthew. I don't know, but um, yeah. But it's, you know, it's like 15, 20 quid. You know, I think it's meant to be about like 10, 12 hours long or whatever. But it's just, uh, given all the doom and gloom about Square Enix, you know, just sort of doubling down on, on basically Final Fantasy and selling off all those Western IP and all this... You know, they are, as long as they still make interesting things like this and support interesting projects like this, this and Centennial Case, I would love a sequel to that, please. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I, I would love to know who it is there that is commissioning this stuff. Oh, they should call it the Bicentennial Case. There you go. That's, <laughs> that's all I got for that one. Um, I, yeah, I would play it. And that would it, definitely be on the Game of the Year list. But uh, yeah, just like... Just a really weird thing that they're doing, but also, you know, 
really welcome. Great characters, fantastic music. Like, very groovy when it wants to be, but also, like, quite spooky. It's genuinely made me jump a few times, this game. Well, this is, uh, yeah, I think this is low-key quite a quite a cool Square Enix era, where they basically just made loads of mid-range stuff. Sort of Valkyrie, uh, Val- you know, sort of sequel, and, like, you know, these sort of SNES 2.5 HD sort of, like, um, RPGs and... I don't know, it's quite an interesting mix in there amid the big Final Fantasies and stuff. You know, it seems like Forspoken didn't really work out, but I don't know. It's uh, it's cool. It's cool that this exists. Mm. It's ju- is it, so it's just on. Is it on mobile, Switch, and Steam? Is that right? That sounds about right. Yeah, it, so you're not on PS5. It and almost stuff. feels like the wing of Square Enix that would have been making DS games if there was still yeah. DS around. Like, that's, that's probably what this feels like, is this... Well, they never really made anything like this on DS, did they? That wasn't really their forte. That was other people, really. Yeah, but they did stuff like, you know, the world ends with you and... Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe not specifically them, but it has that kind of 8 out of 10 that's probably going to be a 9 out of 10 for some people kind of energy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've put this on my wish list anyway, so if I see it cheap, then I'll, I'll give it a go because I, 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 I already have Videoverse to play this year, Matthew, on the visual novel front, but... um. It's obviously a very different deal, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's I'll great try- as well. It's been, it's, it's actually a pretty amazing year. This one, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, like I say, you've been eating well. So, yeah. yep, good. Um, we talked about Paranormal Site without you getting into a sort of like panic about have I talked about it for too long? That happened last year. <laughs> I, I probably did talk about it too long. That's all right. I mean, you know, people know you like this stuff, and you are an authority on this this genre. So. Who am I to stand in the way with my, uh, you know, low nutrition uh, quips, basically? <laughs> has no real value, does it? So. Low nutrition quips. <laughs> That's why I've got midweek. Um, okay, so Matthew, we come to your game of the year, which is Armored Core 6. Um, why don't you tell me about why you love it so much? <laughs> this is the one I've played the, the least amount of, but I thought I'd throw out a bone as people are like, interested in it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I read Wes Fenland's excellent review on pc gamer and this got me really excited about this he brings it wes when it comes to this kind of stuff for sure yeah and i definitely enter this game from a place of caution like i'm not a big mech head i've talked about this before you know i'm I'm not into mech culture i don't idolize them i don't have like mech models and that is definitely like a big part of this game and a lot of the people who've reviewed it clearly have an existing love for both mechs and specifically Armored Core, which is where I think a lot of the enthusiasm comes from. It's just, this is a game laser targeted at a particular person and all those particular people seemingly got to review it. So it got like mega scores. So I, I you know, I just thought I'd offer a take of someone who is really coming to this with, with, with none of that. Which is a, a valuable take, I think, with a series that's this niche, you know? It's- yeah. This was like, this was, whatever people say, this was not a going concern for most people on PS2. I like Definitely not in Europe, maybe a bit more in North America and Japan. But right. yeah, this was not, this was always niche, you know, even in those times. So yeah, it's definitely taken on a different profile thanks to From's increased prominence in the games industry, you know. So yeah, it's a valuable perspective, Matthew. I'm curious to hear what you think of it. I'll say what really resonated with me in, in Wes's review and made me want to play it was talking about it's not just customization for the sake of like bumping up some stats or some numbers. It really changes how your armored core handles. You know, it, it becomes different vehicles based on what you build. And he was talking specifically about like the weapons and like 
I, I bought these particular rocket launchers and they, they had such a satisfying sort of sound and feeling to them that just unleashing these things and that that one point in the review made me think, oh, okay, I've got to give this a go. This this sounds great. Like this idea of meaningful customization that, that really changes the kind of texture of the game. And that customization like is clearly at the heart of the game, even from like the few hours I've played, which really isn't very much and I haven't got very far because I'm quite bad at this game is enough to see that the loop of the game is not just building a mech which you occasionally add an extra part to to bump up its stats it's radically rebuilding your mech based on the missions you're in and the missions are often very short like some of them are like two minutes long i think the longest one i've done was probably about 20 minutes long so it isn't like a big open world you know if you if you're really coming to this blind you know and you see from soft on there it isn't a elden ring or a dark souls or anything like that it's basically a series of quite large sci-fi vistas that you get dropped into with a very specific mission but the nature of that mission will in theory, lead you to building different mechs. So if there's a mission where there's lots of snipers, you might have a mech with a really good long-range weapon. You know, if there's lots of verticality, you might build a mech with, like, better jumping legs so it can get into the air without using as much energy and, you know, get an aerial advantage or get onto the rooftops a bit easier. So there's this sort of sense of if you are butting heads with the game, it isn't because... The mission's super difficult. It's that you've probably bought in a a kind of ill-suited creation. And I think that's at the core of the game. And I do appreciate that. The thing it reminds me of is um, Infinite Space, the DS spaceship building game, which I, what I really liked in that is that the components you put in your spaceship radically changed how it handled and the strategies you would pursue in space battles. And that probably makes sense because i think that game has some heritage you know it comes from one of the guys from nude maker who i think they were like steel battalion there is a through line from like mech games to to infinite space so it makes sense that this game is tickling a bit of my infinite space loving brain i don't find those changes as dramatic in the hands as some reviews led me to believe you definitely sense missions being easier when you've matched a mech to it but i don't feel like i'm handling something radically different you know every mission sort of feels the same to me it feels like a lot of shooting tiny dots on the horizon you know a lot you know maybe that's the build i've got is that i'm not getting up close and personal with things but it's i don't find it like a hugely visceral game to play like, it doesn't actually really sell me as much on that mech fantasy, which was kind of the thing that Wes's review kind of really spoke to me, was this this really tangible kind of satisfying, like, holy shit, the power of these weapons. And actually, everything I've played with so far feels kind of the same and feels like I sort of shoot a lot of, of tiny dots from afar, which then explode into a tiny fireball until I get to a, you know a boss, which I just can't do because difficulty shoots right up. There's this I thought quite severe difficulty spike right at the end of the tutorial. Once you get through that, it's then followed by 
a suite of regular actual tutorials open and like the game suddenly gets much better i can see other people like me coming into this game getting to the tutorial boss and going fuck this i'm refunding it or i'm sending it back like this just isn't for me if this is the kind of ride i'm gonna have which actually doesn't reflect what the game is at all like i think it's i wouldn't say it's easy but it's it's very kind after that first tutorial fight and kind of shows you some quite cool stuff quite quickly like i I don't know if you've seen any of the stuff with like the giant strider mech thing no i've actually like more or less tuned out of this game entirely because i just assumed it wasn't really going to be for me yeah well uh, i wasn't expecting you to play it to be honest so it's you know you know i I wanted to see what the deal was because i'd I'd seen lots of people say like oh it's a lot more kind of like pick up and play and it it, it kind of is. There's there's still a jankiness to it. It's got. It, it feels like the combat's built around like lock on, which you can very easily fuck with by trying to move the camera. You almost have to train yourself like not to touch the camera. And right. I don't know if that's me playing it wrong, but that seems to be what it's leaning me towards. You know, you focus more on kind of evasion and moving the thing around, and let the lock on kind of deal with the aiming. Um, seems to be the thrust of it. And that's what really threw me in the, the first boss because it was moving all over the place. I just couldn't literally like k- keep up with it or kind of get a bead on it, and I was getting quite frustrated with it. I won't lie, Catherine had to do it for me in the end. Um, <laughs> that's fine. She's be- better at games than I am. But then yeah. after that, you suddenly get into these missions, which you can do, and you, you definitely see the appeal of climbing up these giant icy dams and blasting things out of the sky you know it gives you this huge sort of like shadow of the colossus style titan kind of robot thing to climb in like the fourth or fifth mission so it gives you something like really spectacular which is more of a sort of set piece level than an actual boss fight like it's quite easy you know you dodge some lasers in the run up to it and then kind of like fly up its back and stuff but um I mean, the thing is, I, I just wanted to play more Sea of Stars and Paranormal Site, so um, <laughs> I haven't, like, seen this through to its, you know, I haven't seen my sort of line of thought, but it's, I don't see the 10 out of 10 in this that some people seem to see. Right. But maybe, like, if you just live for giant robots, yeah, then this is probably, like, I am, well, it seems like from what people have written, this is, this is like, the, the only game in town. I can't really begrudge people for for getting excited that their niche is like served. I don't know. I don't give Ace Attorney ten out of ten, even though it's my favourite thing. You know? No, it's. I, I think there's also that little mix of. I don't know. It seems cool to have rediscovered Armored Core when, you know, I don't know if you saw Jeremy Peel's um, Floopy Doop X uh, tweet, Matthew, <laughs> but that that spoke to me quite a lot. Just the idea that. I don't know if people would be discussing Armored Core or excavating it in any way, shape, or form had there been no Dark Souls. You know what I mean? Like, it's that entire lineage of games has completely has created a perspective on it that is maybe not reflective of what those games were like to play at the time, um, at least to me, as right. someone who, rev- who reviewed at least one of these games and had such a boring time on PS3. I think it was Armored Core 4 I played. Um, so I think its reputation has been inflated by, you know, just the the incredible work that From Software has done since then. But that's not to say I don't believe the people who have enjoyed this. I believe oh, that they no, have, no, but no, no. it's just I think, like you say, it, it, maybe it's best. You know, like when you see like out of park baseball get like ten out of ten or whatever, and it's like if you like a baseball simulation game, that's the one game you should play. And this is probably that for mech enthusiasts. So maybe it makes sense that yeah. by that criteria, those scores are that high. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I, I still think when you're dealing with those kind of scores, there is an element of like, can this can this go beyond its core? Can this yeah. like bring other people in in a way? And I, I wouldn't say this this does um, right. from what I've played so far, you know. But, but yeah, well, I'm not saying I I I thought I was going to bounce off it way more than I have. Um, I thought like if it was all like that at the time I was having with the tutorial boss, I'd be like, fuck this game. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just weird how what follows is just such a better introduction to the world and its mechanics than that first mission. You know, they continue continue to be diabolically shit at, <laughs> at kind of like getting people the into new player games. experience. Yeah. yeah, that's just their whole thing, isn't it? It's just like. Yeah, we just dropped a turd in the middle of like you know that your opening stretch of this game, and you'll either push through, push through the turd, and declare this the best game ever, or resign in um, disgrace um, in the face of the right. turd. Um, so yeah, those um, that's just that's just from software, I guess. But it definitely yeah. seems that it's a lot shorter, at least. How long to beat a pegs at twenty hours at most, Matthew, to do everything? So that's that's intriguing it's super explicit about like the story you know it, it you know just has characters that say exactly what they mean you know and it's yeah. just like mercs barking over the radio and stuff and you know there are missions where you go in and it partners you up with ai characters who and you just go on a big old rampage and you're like well this is great like we're just having lots of fun here this is just pure spectacle um, yeah. Like no brains at all, which I would say is very sort of the sort of antithesis to to what I would as uh, you know would take our like from software strengths, and maybe that's just true to to Armored Core. You know, like I say, not a series I have uh, experience with. I don't really, I don't really see like a huge amount of connective tissue between the work they've been doing elsewhere. You know, in the intervening years and this. Um, yeah. But, you know, maybe it means I'd actually finish it. I don't know. I bet there's some fucking evil boss. I mean, I couldn't do a tutorial boss. I know the next boss I meet will be just the end for me. <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing more about your adventures with this. You've been a very curious um, player of late. You've got a lot of games sort of like you've racked a bunch of hours with. I'm very impressed by your, you know, your diligence, Matthew, in ticking things curious. off this year. Well, no, you are. You're, you're, I think you're, you're just so much better at finishing games than me. You've got like you know, you've you've got Zelda at a point where you can finish it. You've finished it, almost finished FF16. You've got that nearly done. Oh, I have finished um, that now. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Boulder Skate Three. Out, where are you at with that? Uh oh no, I've got I've got loads to go. That's good. Maybe that is a pod for us at some point as well. Maybe like we get some proper time with it and talk about it. That yeah, yeah. That that one's that one's tough because like I like to play it for like five hours if i'm gonna play i want to play it for five hours and i just yeah. i never seem to have that window of time gotcha well in any case matthew i think that was a solid little pack of what we've been playing um for this this month so hopefully people got some value out of that i definitely uh, have enjoyed playing some different bits and pieces to the the monster sized games that are coming out this year so should we take a quick break matthew and come back with some list of questions let's do it Fine. I was just trying to steer you out of it at a certain point. I was yeah, like, I, just, I, I just, I don't know what I think about it. <laughs> no, it's okay. But that's, I think it, I think it was not, not too long anyway. It was, it was all good. Um, it was only about ten minutes of that of the pod that. Um, so yeah, don't worry about it. It's all good. 
All right, I'll jump back in. Welcome back to the podcast. So, as we try and catch up with our monster backlog of pod questions in the Discord, which is a blessing, not a curse, I remind myself, uh, to have so many listeners who want to hear what we think. We are very grateful for that. Um, We have a bunch more questions here to get through. I know we just did a mailbag, but we're just trying to catch up as much as we can. So we have a few more to get through. Matthew, do you want to read this first one? Yes. Sir Samuel and Master Matthew, how do you fare physically when playing VR? I'm enjoying Half-Life Alex on the Oculus Quest 2 at the moment, inspired by Matthew's hilarious stream of it when he was at RPS, but every session gets cut short by nausea and headaches for me. Any tips for how to get the best experience of VR? That's from Bumster. <laughs> Good stuff. Bumster returns. Uh, the return of Bumster. So, yeah, I actually don't get this, and in some ways I think that you either do get the VR motion sickness or you don't. And that's kind of sadly, I think you're just doomed with it. I mean, the kind of like the the sort of um, the the physical effects I get are I can't really stand up that long these days without my back hurting, which is really embarrassing. And or at least I can't stand up and exert myself for more than like an hour before I need to sit down for a bit or lie down for a bit. So don't know what happened there. My mid thirties probably. Yeah. Um, so uh, funny actually, like the the most physical damage I've taken from VR lately was playing. Um, I've been getting to like some of the later boxers in Thread of the Fight, the boxing game, and <laughs> that requires you to absolutely batter the air. And I was doing it before work each morning, but it got it's gotten too sunny lately to do it. But the last time I played it, I, it was like I'd actually been boxing. I was like collapsed on my sort of like sofa. I was sweating. I like felt like I'd, I'd had an actual fight, except I hadn't been punched in the face at all. Um, and I was just like, my back was caning and my arms really hurt. And I was like, oh my God, I'm completely fucked. So that was my last VR experience. And so I don't know about tips to get the best from it. I think playing it in moderation is probably the best thing I can offer on this because I really do think that, the, you know, the Quest, and I don't know about PSVR too, but I imagine it's a similar thing. Playing them for about an hour at a time feels right to me. It never really feels right to be playing VR for like, four to five hours at a time it's not really what it's for to me it's like you do a little bit of that physical exertion you have it on your head you have the headset on your face for a while and then you just kind of want to take it off and like maybe wipe away the sweat or whatever and just like allow your eyes to recalibrate to reality what are your thoughts on this one matthew yeah i'm kind of so similar I, I, the only thing that really gets to me is like ones with quite a lot of physical clambering about like when right. I'm having to move my arms and my head's just moving a lot in the game world, um, the Horizon one on PSVR two, that that makes me feel truly terrible. Um, I had to play loads of that for some capture for some stuff at work, and when you're like, you've got the time pressure of like, I really need to get through this so I can capture this particular thing, and combined with like just the nausea that you have to like push through, that right. was like a super tough hang. Um, my uh, my general setup and my solution is that I I bought this stupid sort of high stool that I sit on because I also I just can't stand up for more than ten minutes without <laughs> my back hurting because so fat um, <laughs> and that stool uh, whenever guests come around like one of our cats <laughs> always sits on it and everyone's like oh that's nice you've got like a little cat stool <laughs> and in my head I'm thinking no that's my that's my special lazy throne for VR but you oh, don't need to know that 
it's so funny though that when you think it is for the cat it's so funny that moment of like because you're sat down on an actual chair Catherine sat down on the sofa and then there's just this mystery stool where a cat appears there and you're like oh I guess that's the cat's seat and it's like <laughs> it's pretty funny I'm not gonna lie so it's uh, quite a tall chair right you've seen very it tall heads. very tall yeah yeah so this cat, cat is like this cat's probably like above your head (laughs) (laughs) exactly it's a little bit disconcerting but i I see that as a sign of respect from you towards your cats you're like we treat you as equals here and better than our guests so um yeah uh yeah good that that's still yeah the vr still that's pretty funny um oh yeah okay so hopefully that was that was at least partially yeah it's just tough isn't it like yeah it's like my dad used to always get sick from playing first person games he just couldn't play them after a certain point so he used to, like, one of his great pleasures used to be playing Duke Nukem 3D or Dark Forces. And then he just, at a certain point, he was like, I just can't play these without getting sick now. So I feel bad for him. I think some people combat with that with like FOV sliders, but I don't really yeah. know what what the solution is with VR. That's just, um, like I say, you either get it or you don't. And maybe as headsets become crisper, the resolution improves and the headset becomes more comfortable, it maybe you'll get that experience will improve for people. You- at least I hope so. so- is is your your dad's love of the saboteur? Is that just like a sort of second best sort of? Oh, this will do. Well, I don't know because he plays the Call of Duty campaigns. I don't know if it's like an old FPS thing. I don't know right. what his deal is really. But he he only ever really plays games in like small doses. I should say he doesn't just play the saboteur. I mean, I feel like I've set that <laughs> expectation on this podcast. He does. He da- dabbles with other games, but they have to involve World War Two and like masculine dudes doing shit in World War Two. And the same applies for him with like a lot of his entertainment. If you get a TV show that has that in it, great. A book, fantastic. Although he also enjoys um, the sharp books by Bernard Cornwell, obviously, because he what is a-, a dad. So you know, yeah. What about silly World War Two? What about like Wolfenstein? Uh, you know what? I don't think he would engage with it because of the zombies and like the, the supernatural element. I don't think he would be into it. He's um, just too not, scared. Not all of them have zombies, though, do they? Is there? It's not really an undead element in the um, uh, no, machine games like, ones, is there? Yeah, it's got robots. Yeah, that's even that might be a bit too silly for him. Like, he's still, don't think he's like a big and glorious bastard's head, for example. I think <laughs> right. he's, he's much more like I need a film that's about like some dudes blowing up one bridge, right. and that's like his whole deal, basically. This so. is good. This is an important part. <laughs> it's good. To the, the real heads like to like learn a little bit more about home lives. <laughs> Do you I've, th- if- I've thrown them a little bit of Devon. You've thrown them a little bit of your dad's war tastes. <laughs> What's weird though is I'm now getting to the age where that my dad was when he had accumulated a lot of his dad like hobbies. So watching Sharp was very much a thing he was doing in the nineties. You know, getting into I don't know Bravo Two Zero or whatever, and you know that kind of like level of content, gardening, decorating, and I've I've engaged with none of that. What, what's yeah, why have yeah, we? For, beca- for, for we know, the things that you are into, which yeah. feel like a young man's pursuits, like comic books, yeah. maybe in the eyes of the 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 true young men of today, they're like, oh man, imagine <laughs> reading comic books like old Grandpa Roberts over here. I you don't know, know. what Play- they like is screeching on TikTok. And playing Final Fantasy feels a bit more like I don't feel like playing Final Fantasy is the, the watching Sharp on ITV One equivalent. I think of it today. is. I think yeah, like playing an MMO. My <laughs> God, that's very much the in the yeah. eyes. Maybe I don't know. Anyway, I mean, lots to think about there. Anyway, Bumster, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> it absolutely didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Next question then. With the release of Baldur's Gate Three, if you could be any fictional race, what would you be? Uh, deep gnomes matthew obviously um also any preference in class basically 
what would um, you like to play as in D and D? Some Betamax Bandit. I feel like we talked about this a little bit. This might have predated our. Deep I talked about what companion I what I'd be to 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 stop you <laughs> romancing me. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, good times that. And that's why uh, I was the deep gnome. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, I don't really know. Really, I get that we talked about the D and D thing. I'm a bit like I don't, I don't, you know, it's not something I really know much about. Like it's yeah. like a goblin barder thing. I've no idea really, but you know, like I, it's. Uh... I don't think I'd play as some like weird creature which was very different to to myself. Like I, in the game, I'm playing as a, a monk wood elf, I think, right. or maybe a monk half elf, half elf something. Um, so Sounds I look, very vanilla. I look very humanoid, and I punch people a lot. I do a lot of punching in that game, and a lot of punching people down holes. Um, okay, which is good. Did I tell you about the uh, the thing with Adams? adam smith's character no um so uh, i used to work with adam smith at rock paper shotgun he obviously left rock paper shotgun to go and work at larry and he's one of their their like uh he's i think he's their like lead writer now he's like kind of climbed the ranks there very very smart brilliant dude mm-hmm. um and uh, the way it works at larry is that they each each writer ha- like takes ownership over a particular companion i think that's the same at like bioware and other studios and so they like write all their kind of like companion quest lines and all the dialogue for them. And so the character Adam wrote is one of the evil characters who's quite optional. Like if you if you just follow the normal quest line, you can you'll meet this person, have to kill them. But if you if you talk to them, uh, they can enlist you and basically get you to kind of turn on turn on your friends, and then they'll be a companion for the rest of the game. So it's actually quite like. It, you know, there's a very good chance you won't spend much time with this character at all, who he has written all this stuff for. Um, but when I encountered her in the game, I had this very extreme version of this, where I, I kind of got into a, a battle encounter with her before we even had a chance to exchange a word. And the first thing I did was punch her with my monk, who's got like a punches which send people flying. And I just punched her into a bottomless pit, and she instantly died. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> I just said I sent him a DM on Twitter just saying I've just punched all your work down a hole like I literally <laughs> she didn't say anything to me I haven't heard a word of what you wrote for this <laughs> character and like that's part of the brilliance of Baldur's Gate that's that they have employed people to write these amazing characters who you are then free to like punch down a hole um he was like, that's okay, you know, you can kind of go back on the replay and enlist her, because, like, I promise you it's really good. Um, but it just made me laugh, the kind of vindictiveness of, of uh, rubbing that in his face. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 that's, uh, that's, that's funny. I'm sure he's getting lots and lots of messages from former colleagues at the moment, just being like, oh, I'm doing this in your game and stuff like that. So he'd probably be a good podcast, wouldn't he? Let's yeah, we, yeah, that would be good to set up. Well, I, say, I saw him from afar at Gamescom and, like, Anyone in a Baldur's Gate 3 dev shirt at Gamescom is just, like, instant rock star. <laughs> yeah, it felt, like, it felt like Gamescom was, like, their victory lap a little bit. Oh, yeah, like, you, don't, you don't need to sell this game anymore. It's just, <laughs> like, yeah, like, he, he rocked up. Actually, Adam rocked up. He was in when I was playing Space Marine 2. Like, like I think if you worked on Baldur's Gate 3, you can basically go to any booth and they'll show you <laughs> their game, even if you've not got an appointment. Right, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's like the should... anti-official uh, Xbox magazine. 
<laughs> being actively actively turned away. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, Space Marine, our Space Marine too. Have we talked about that on the podcast? I, can't remember. I don't think we have, have we? So was that all right? Just very briefly, was that good? Yeah. It uses the zombie tech from World War Z to have all the Tyranids pile up in like really grim mountains of Tyranids, which is quite cool. That is pretty cool. All right, cool. Well, I look forward to playing that one. Look at me saying Tyranids like I know what the fuck I'm talking about. I call them Tyranids for ages. and then Oh, like, is that how it's... I don't know how it's well, no, pronounced. I, I, I don't know either. I, sh- I should really know this stuff, um, to be honest. But uh, anyway. Okay, next question, Matthew. Do you read this one? Yes. All right, S&M. Do you ever suffer with choice paralysis with games? I have a big backlog of physical games and a Game Pass sub, so the options feel a bit overwhelming at times. Do you ever suffer with this? And if so, what strategies do you have to break out of it? That's oh boy, do I ever. Um, this is like my life, basically, is um, choice paralysis for what games to play. And this podcast sets the terms of them to some extent, which helps, because it's like, I know we have a podcast on this at a certain point. I know to, I need to have played these before the end of the year. But to be honest, the main thing I would suggest is that just follow your instincts and do random bullshit because that's how I ended up playing Pikmin 4 when I had a Final Fantasy and a Zelda to play. I was just like, I need to just not think about the weight of these 60 plus hour games and I need to just play something else. I just need to chuck some blue Pikmin to their death for like 20 hours. And that's what I did. So yeah, that's um, that. I, I really do think you've just got to like... F- you just got to like follow your instinct down the different sort of like rabbit holes it takes you and you'll find things you like instead of playing things you feel like you're obliged to play and yeah again like that's how i ended up playing dredge that's how i ended up playing my house i've I've got bigger games i need to be playing but i just thought the idea takes my fancy i want to give this a go and i've been having some of my best game experiences of the year doing that rather than feeling like you know i need to get the most out of my game pass subscription or whatever because i know i can always come back to that stuff so yeah i suppose that's my tip is yeah just sort of like follow your nose a little bit what do you think matthew yeah i i, I definitely don't get this with physical games like if i buy a game if i actually go out and spend money that's that's all the motivation i need to to you know at least give it a decent chunk of time to see if i like it mm. um game pass though yeah it, it is tricky i mean occasionally just have evenings where i'll play like an hour of lots of different things it's like you've got an hour to impress me which maybe isn't a very fair way to play some games like they're gonna need time to bed in or they don't put their best foot forward but uh, you know but that that also reveals some sort of pleasant surprises to you um yeah it's it's not a very satisfying answer is it to go (laughs) it's tricky but it's tricky um, for context, Matthew didn't have the questions for this episode until like two minutes before we recorded the podcast because I so forgot it's to like share them with him. Yeah, you were right. That is a problem. <laughs> um, game Pass is like having an endless uh, sort of like demo disc for like official PlayStation magazine or Xbox magazine in the noughties. It's yeah. like, what if you had an endless array of stuff and you played them all for like 30 minutes to an hour? Now, you know, some of them will stick and that's kind of amazing. But the experience is not unlike that, I would say. It's like, oh, oh I've got a little selection box of things to dip into, you know. So Imagine being yeah. a teenager now, though. Yeah, good and bad, though, because there's just so much stuff fighting for your attention, whereas it felt manageable in the 90s and noughties, yeah. you know. Also, um, the world will probably be on fire by the time you're like 80. Oh, we're back to that, are we? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have just avoided that, I think. 
Uh, yeah, maybe just by the skin of our teeth, but younger generations will hate us for not solving it, basically. And instead arguing about fucking ULEZ or whatever. So, yeah, but, uh... they'll be... <laughs> but they'll be able to look back and go, but man, we had the ultimate version of demo discs in Game Boy. <laughs> like, and went at the perfect, at the time where we had time to enjoy these things because we were teenagers. <laughs> Except, um... well, the, the key thing as well is um, the games are obviously much longer now. So it would actually be more manageable if, like, we didn't have to contest with, you know, five to ten games that are, like, you know, 60 hours plus a year. When we did the 360 draft, the thing that stood out was there, there would be, like, one or two games a year that were, like, that long. But, you know, you could fire through a sort of, like, Dead Space and Fable and, you know, Mirror's Edge in you know, probably all capture that all within about 50 hours. You know what I mean? It was, mm. you could get, you could, yeah, you had less bang for your buck, but that was arguably better for you in terms of the amount you were able to sort of absorb um, playing games. And uh, yeah, yeah. So it's not just a volume problem. It's uh, how fucking long the games are. Okay. This next podcast, this next, uh, Koi, uh, sorry. Koi is on our Discord and goes to the cinema loads, right? Yeah, he does. Yeah, uh, I think well, so. Just go to yeah. the cinema less. That's your problem. <laughs> well, I've given. Well, you know, you go to cinema plenty. Yeah, Wait, but, no, should... but he goes way more than me. That's life advice. What okay, you are enough. is a film fan, my friend, not a game <laughs> fan. <laughs> this is turning into uh, yeah, something very different and twisted, sort of agony aunt situation. Okay, <laughs> this, this next question. Had time to prep. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, okay, dear Sam and Matthew, listening to your interview episodes, you often get a really interesting tour of the guests' early gaming experiences and career. I find myself wishing for a similar tour of your own early journeys with gaming. I know I can piece it together from previous episodes. So my question is, have you ever participated in other podcasts where you gave such a tour of your gaming journey I can listen to? Personally, I'd love to see both of you as guests on Simon Parkin's My Perfect Console <laughs> podcast. Um, best regards. Uh, oh, there's a joke there. But he's pretending our... that he's Simon writing to us. Yeah, uh, that's from our space. We're not really famous <laughs> enough to I like this that it's, so you're pretending to be from Simon Parkin, but it's actually from someone called our space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not really famous enough to go on Simon's podcast. And I'm not no, saying that. I'm not saying like, that weird. That's, just... that's got like, in like five years from now, when he's really done everyone else in his contact <laughs> book. And he's like, it is these guys. <laughs> <laughs> Someone did point out in response, and both myself and Matthew have been on the uh, Final Games podcast, which is quite a lot like Simon's podcast beforehand. It was like by hosted by uh, Liam Edwards, who is now an indie developer, and we both talked about you know our Desert Island games on that. I would probably change my choices quite substantially if I did that again. I would say that of our podcasts, probably the most, the one that was probably got the most meat on the bones would be that XL podcast we did on 16-bit games, Matthew, because that had really like far back early memories yeah. of game stuff right look, look, stuff we've never talked about before and it was actually quite a good little pod that one um i think i talked about that my trumpet uh anecdote on that one it was a, a good time um what what about you maybe, Matthew? Maybe, and it would be like super self-indulgent but like if i remember really desperate if you're ever like sick and you can't do an episode and i'm like <laughs> i've just got i've got like the mic to myself i'd probably get like my brother on just to like litigate all the anecdotes I've told through this whole podcast project about about our life, just yeah. to see how much of it I actually because my brother's got a much better memory than me, and yeah. so that you know I'd, I'd like to tour it with someone who actually remembers it. <laughs> <laughs> he's debunked a few of your anecdotes as well, which was really fun. He's a he's a great laugh as well, Alex. That'd be really fun to have him on. I think at some point, but yeah, okay. So anything else to add on that one, Matthew? We'll, we'll do an episode where we have my brother on and your dad on. 
oh, I don't want my dad on the podcast. Like, I'm like, no, just no. I sort of like, do you know what? I sent him. I was expecting him to go, oh, wow, when they like did re- announced the Dark Forces um, remaster they're doing. No response. And that's like so typically him. He's like, if I usually if I tell him something like that, he'll tell me an anecdote that's like only partially related to it. It's like, it'll just, it, if I, I'm surprised he didn't come back to me and go, Oh, I got stuck in that sewer level for ages when I played that game. It's like, yes, Dad, I was there. Like, I was, that's the kind of situation I normally get into with him. But hey, next next question, Matthew. Do you want to read this one? Yeah, from the sublime to the ridiculous. If you were a filled egg, what filling would you have, and what kind of animal would lay you? <laughs> yeah, uh, I've been like stripping out too many of the bullshit questions in the Discord, and like people have been complaining that I'm, I'm sort of like neglecting them. And I've, it's fair enough. Um, so we haven't had a Yushinaka question for a while, probably because he's in jail. Well, he's not really in jail. He just he just got tried for a, a crime um, and found guilty. Um, if you're a field egg, I think I would probably contain salted caramel, or you know, like um, sort well, of like that kind of egg. Yeah, well, field egg, right? It's not like. You know, you, I don't not, really know what a filled egg is. Well, like a cream eggs are filled. filled oh, like egg, a right? chocolate egg. He's not talking about. Oh, right, I was thinking like a scotch egg. Well, yeah, I, I think you meant like what if I was a chicken situation, but it's, I don't think it's that. It's right. yeah, so salted caramel or something much more cursed, like the fatty rind on like a pork chop. Like that would be inside oh, my oh, egg. <laughs> you, you bite into it and then you just be like you recoil in horror, essentially. Um, like, and would, kind it, of, like, and, would it be more cursed to be a drink inside a filled egg? Uh, oh, what like Fanta or something? Like you punch a hole in it. Yeah, so you've got like a chocolate shell. You punch a hole in it, and then uh, you just like a coconut. You drink Rio from inside. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be pretty disgusting because those things shouldn't really be mixed together. But is it? I I don't think I can get more cursed than my fatty rind idea. Yeah, that is, oh, like, that is really unpleasant. And it just spills out when you like crack the top of it. Really grim stuff. I, I would and, imagine a pig would lay that right. Uh, yeah. So okay. So uh, me as a filled egg of fatty rind laid by a pig great great job <laughs> listeners <laughs> what have you got matthew <laughs> yeah i'm like yeah i'm a i'm a chocolate egg filled with tropical rio and what laser i mean that's just i mean only um, a robot could make that um, well rio would suggest some kind of like jungle animal wouldn't it like I don't know, like a fucking <laughs> snake <laughs> Yeah, okay, fine, Snake. Yeah, I was about to say, was about to say Gorilla, and I was like, they don't lay a eggs. A boa constrictor. <laughs> yeah. Lay a disgusting Rio-filled egg. Yeah, a very, like, a dubious um, a giraffe egg, which uh, can't so, possibly exist, so yeah. There you go, Melma. Hope you enjoyed that answer. Oh, bloody hell. Sweaty job, that one. Okay, after the success of Power Wash Simulator, which mundane job would make a great video game? That's from Welsh Boy Mick. Do you know what? I remember getting very excited about the idea of... Um, Paperboy 64. Is that a game they did? Paperboy 64? I feel like it is, Matthew. Yeah, it rings a bell. Yeah, I remember there just being some kind of 3D revival of Paperboy. And I think it was just because when I was about 11 or 12 reading about that in Games Master or whatever, the idea of being a Paperboy seemed very exotic and exciting to me. Then I became a Paperboy and it was quite mundane. And uh, yeah, so um, so what can I say? But I don't know, something like that might be good. Power Simulator was like a very impressive version of that type of thing. And the amount of longevity they've got out of it by doing like collaborations with, you know, Warhammer and uh, sort of like Final Fantasy and all kinds of stuff is pretty impressive. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That Paperboy weirdly jumps out to me as something that's still kind of exciting. I like that mini game in Bully where you're a Paperboy. I think that's pretty cool, getting chased by the dog. Uh, yeah, why not? What about you, Matthew? 
Uh, it would be the paint mixing machine at home base. <laughs> because it's got, like, a nice interface that you can interact with. It's got, like, the physicality of, like, getting the right pot of paint. Like, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. There's a lot of variables, which I think makes for the kind of the skill of the game. You know, like, if someone tells you the situation that they want the paint mixed for, and then you have to go, like, well, okay, that's going to be a bathroom, so we probably want, like you know, a matte paint that isn't too kind of glossy when the sun comes through, you know, that's going to be bad. And so like, <laughs> you know, there's, there's almost like a sort of a, a, a verbal stage where they're telling you the thing and you're working out exactly what they need. And then there's the physical, like putting the paint machine in, typing all the buttons in, maybe the, um, using the, the paint matching uh, technology that they have, you know, they used to have that Dulux, I can't remember they used to call it. <laughs> the adverts were like, you bring in a sample of something, we'll scan it, and then we'll make that color for you. Right, um, right. So people bring you all these like weird objects that you have to get into the machine, and then you know, there's restocking the paint swatches. Those that's fun. I think I think you should just go and do this job in real life because I it would clearly it. bring I've done, you I've lots of joy. Time. I've done my time on this. I was very very. <laughs> ha- I was never happier at home base than on the when on the paint mixing machine. <laughs> I was never happier at a home at home base at, at as home a start base. of a sentence. Yeah. Okay. Not in my life. Good. I mean, as a life experience, quite low down the ladder. Be- but better or worse than working on OXM post relaunch, Matthew. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I would still take I would still take OXM then. That's good. You have to think have, about it though. Yeah. The worst thing about that machine, the kind of you know, you bring it, we'll match it, is the advert on TV. You know, it had a lot of cute things where someone mm. would, you know, like steal a weird ornament from someone's house because it had a fleck of color on it. And actually the amount of color you ne- you needed quite a substantial amount of it for the scanner to work and also it had to be flat. So if anyone did bring you something weird, like a toy car or a fucking plate or something, you're like, well, I'm not going to be able to get this in the machine. Like, you've watched the advert and taken it too literally. Like, what it's, <laughs> actually, what it's actually about is, like, matching to wallpaper. That's right. what you really want, is someone to bring you a bit of wallpaper to put in the machine. And then, more often than not, the machine would, like, wig out, would see multiple <laughs> colours and just merge them together and just give you brown every single time. It'd be like, <laughs> you're looking for brown. And you're like, no, no, they're not looking for brown. So what, what you'd, you'd do is, while the machine was doing it, you'd go, why don't you look at the colour swatches and see if you can pick the closest match to what you think it is. And then they'd pick something and you'd go, yeah, it was that. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> it was red. Okay, it's good. It's like, that's it. You've got the perfect eye. That's exactly what the machine suggested. <laughs> yeah, orange. Oh, wow, I didn't think of that one. Uh, yeah, that's sort of fine. Well, amazing. Well, for that person who asked, um, is there a podcast that's just about like your entire life up until this point? We've just filled in another chapter of Matthew's yeah. life there, so lots of granular detail to enjoy. So that is a computer game, basically, Matthew. Is that what yeah. we're saying? Okay, good. I like that our lives are basically like, you know, the screen of um, her story where you can see all the different <laughs> clips that you've collected so far and you're like, yeah. you've unlocked 12% of my life story and <laughs> now the little bit about paint mixing's filled in. Yeah, cross-fading my man boobs with another shot of my man boobs, kind of like me walking <laughs> around my flat topless, basically. Um, sorry, <laughs> I don't know how I got down this road. Okay, uh... Whose turn is it next? Is it you or me? I can't remember. Um, hello, uh, hello, gents. 
if you could take one thing out of any game and put it into every game ever made to make those games better, what would it be and why? Can be anything. A gimmick, Mario's double chomps, a particular weapon, etc. That's from Growler17. Yeah, uh, so I wouldn't want this to be in every game because... That's a curse. Yeah, again, like, I don't, you know, I don't know if you should put you know what what remains of Edith Finch would benefit from just causes grappling hook you know what I mean like <laughs> those things may not be well you never know actually it's that fish sequence you could grapple some of the fish together I guess um yeah that I, baby I, I, could have got out of the bar <laughs> oh gosh spoiler alert uh so yeah I would say probably that actually because I, it's the kind of like the noise it used to make when you would snap those two you snap two objects together using that grappling hook and then the little um sort of like metallic sound that would happen when you when you sort of like activated it to basically pull the two objects together that um that sort of like mechanic in just cause was just really really cool it was just you know the applications of it were reasonably limited in the end you were basically just strapping explosive barrels to vehicles and that sort of thing but the act of doing it always felt really good like they got the feedback right for that one so that's the thing i probably think about the most is like uh yeah, just a mechanic that's stuck in my head after all this time where I'm like, yeah, you know, just attaching two things together, just fun, fun in the game. What about you, Matthew? It's got this demented image of immortality, except in one of the clips, she just does a double jump out of nowhere. And everyone's <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, well, she's got like the BFG from you know, Doom or whatever. So yeah, just makes no sense at all. Uh, but yeah. you have to do it. That's the concept of the question. Yeah, true. Uh, uh, oh, it's uh, oh, it's very difficult. Remember, it's not actually going to happen, Matthew. It's just you just yeah, got to like. I just, I... <laughs> this is something I would, you know, I could have prepped a hilarious answer. What do I like in games? What's good? I'd like. What well, I take, I'll take, I'll take the writing of Ace Attorney. I'll take Shooter Kumi's writing, and he's <laughs> now responsible sake. for all games. <laughs> so all games are written in that same time, whatever their subject matter. <laughs> But and he's extremely tired now. That's like his because he's had to rewrite every game. It's he's like... had to write every game. We're not. <laughs> you're not allowed to play another game until it's been through the process. <laughs> so he's there, and it's it's a bit like we know in Xbox are like we're proud to announce these five games are, are now backwards compatible. It's yeah. like we're proud to announce these five games are now shoe shoe penned. <laughs> right and she's just like oh god and he's like what's next and they're like oh bad luck it's red fucking... alert you know he's <laughs> yeah, got to well, do that's he's good. Done and that's easy it's more like oh you've got to rewrite you know dragon age and you're like oh christ that's gonna take a long time i don't know red alert would be quite demanding it's like oh yeah if something smells it's usually joseph stalin you know what i mean like it's, <laughs> it's gonna be tough for him in there you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> that's that's that i'm gonna refine my point I want specifically that junk in every game ever. <laughs> Sorry Just to if like something. If something smells, it's usually, and then it has to be something <laughs> in your game. <laughs> I'm sorry that that's the only bit of Ace Attorney writing I could pull out of thin air, but um, here we are. So, uh, all right, good. We've got the most Matthew Castle answer ever. Shooter Kumi rewriting every game. Okay. It's a beautiful day in the Discord. The sun is shining, the birds are singing, and Samuel's smiling, possibly because he's banished Games Industry Chat to its own channel. That happened a little while ago. It was very dramatic in the Discord. If you, could two could, if you two could banish, each banish one topic, gaming or not, from all discourse news and media to somewhere... You need never see it again. What topic would you pick? Love the pod. 177 episodes, including Patreon stuff and still going strong. That's some balladeer. Matthew, what would you ban from all discussion? 
that Activision Xbox deal. Just very, very boring. And it's just surrounded by unpleasant characters. So that's why that that's what I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear the kind of Twitter commentary at doing their things. I also don't want to hear like you know, you get those like there's that kind of weird Activision sort of pit bull PR person who's always giving everyone grief on Twitter. I'm like, ugh, no thanks. Not for me. So for me, all fanboy content really. If I could like purge people saying I don't know, PlayStation or Xbox, this or that, because I think that stuff has been weirdly legitimized I feel, yeah, I in recent like years. A part of me dies with that conversation too, though. Like I've got a little bit of fanboyishness in me. I don't. I don't though. I really don't. I'm completely mm. objective. I like. I just. <laughs> I just. I just go where the good games I'm are. Completely objective. Well, I am about. I am about hardware manufacturers because I don't really care who makes the hardware as long as they're yeah. responsible hardware. You know, they're responsible platform holders and they have good games on them. That is all I care about. I don't. I don't put Sony ahead of Microsoft or Nintendo ahead of Microsoft or Microsoft ahead of Sony. I don't care about any of that. Like, mm. honestly, I have no investment in that whatsoever. I don't care who wins. I want all of them to stay in business because it's good for me as a player. But I don't care who wins. And if I can never have to hear about it again, I'd be very happy. I, people who align their identities with that stuff, I would purge from the internet. <laughs> okay, wow. good. Yeah, yeah. I realise I do sound ridiculous saying I'm completely objective. Just about that one thing. <laughs> everything else, complete, I'm subjective about everything. So, uh, yeah. Do you uh, want to read out this just... last one, Matthew? Yeah. Uh, dear Samuel and Matthew, I recently visited Uncharted Lost Legacy and found myself marvelling at many of the sites. What are some of the games that stand out to you in terms of grand vistas? Yours, Blinky. Yeah, so obviously, like open world games are really obvious, you know, fit for this. You, you know, so obviously Zelda does this incredibly well, and you know, Ghost of Tsushima, pretty much anything you can name. Cinematic Sony games like Last of Us Part Two, incredible, sort of like you know, incredible bringing those worlds to life. I guess like slightly less obviously, Final Fantasy Thirteen is a game of amazing vistas that you experience from inside a corridor. But they are extraordinary vistas. That's kind of like the point of why you're in a corridor, I think, is just to kind of like marvel at the amazing surroundings they've built you, these, you know, sci-fi cityscapes or uh, sort of like gorgeous, uh, fantastical, you know, sort of like natural land masses and things like that. I would also throw in Destiny, Matthew. I think Destiny's got some amazing sort of like sci-fi book cover style stuff that you can just sort of enjoy from afar while you're... And popping lots of aliens off. Obviously, you know, Destiny might not be your sort of thing, but you can't deny that Bungie's got amazing artists um, that bring this stuff to life. So, yeah, a few examples for me there, Matthew. What about you? Yes. Even Mario Kart's got good vistas, you know? Everything's got good vistas these days. It's basically like it has to be a USP of your game now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I really liked... I, I liked how they kind of sell the kind of space beyond the playing space in um star wars jedi survivor i thought that was nice yeah that had some good star warsy sites you could stare out i thought that was cool um yeah. some you could eventually go to yeah know. well that was that was that was that was what was cool about that you were like is that just background or is that actually in the game and um you're just gonna have to accept that underpowered answer from me i'm afraid <laughs> And on that note, the podcast comes to a close. So we will keep working what through a, those what questions. Disappointing ending. I couldn't think of a vista. <laughs> That's cool. Have you got any more anecdotes about um, sort of comedy mackerel signs in uh, beer in Devon, Matthew? I wish. Or like, 
because <laughs> I can whip those out when I don't have a good answer. It's like uh, instead I'll just I'll 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 give you a little bit more completion rate of my her story backstory. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, just like uh, forty five more minutes on working in home base. Basically, that's. Oh, I've uh, got loads of home base material. Well, that's good. Well, I've got some. I got some one stop material we can trade at some point. Um, but yeah, that'll be um exciting for the listeners, no doubt. So. <laughs> As mentioned, DS draft next week. Hopefully, Matthew will feel a bit better by then. Although he has somehow recorded two hours of podcast with me on a weeknight. I, this is not aiding your recovery at all, pal. It's terrible, no. really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so go eat some dinner after this. Um, you can follow the podcast at Backpage Pod on Twitter. We're also on Blue Sky now. Uh, Backpage Pod on Blue Sky as well. I've set up an account on there. No idea if Matthew's using Blue Sky yet, but um, either way, I've given him a code. So, yep, we're on there, and you can support the podcast, patreon.com slash backpagepod. If you'd like to hear our podcast on gaming prisons and doing an escape room this month, then that's the place to go. Also, some uh, some more Asian crime fiction that we'll talk about on there. Should be fun. Matthew, where can people find you on social media? Mr. Basil underscore pesto. Let's get out of here. See you next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye.